San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from Professor Thomas DeFrance. DeFrance is Professor and Chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke University, as well as a professor in the program in dance, in theater studies, and in women's studies. This talk took place on March 8, 2017, before the performance of an all-balancing triple bill featuring Stravinsky Violin Concerto, Prodigal Son, and Diamonds. Hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. My name is Carrie Geyser Casey, and I have the pleasure of assisting with the um, adult engagement programs here at San Francisco Ballet. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you to tonight's lecture, African American Presence in American Ballet, by Professor Thomas de France. Thomas de France is professor and chair of African and African American Studies at Duke University and also the director of Slippage, Performance Culture Technology, which is a research group that explores emerging technology and live performance applications. De France has authored several books, among which are Dancing Many Drums, Excavations in African American Dance, and Dancing Revelations, Alvin Ailey's Embodiment of African American Culture. He has also acted as dramaturg to Tanya Weidman Davis, and Thaddeus Davis's past carry forward at the Dance Theater of Harlem. In 2013, working with Takia Amin, de France founded the Collegium for African Diaspora Dance at Duke University. Please join me in welcoming Professor de France. Thank you very much and good evening. I want to uh, offer a special thanks to Cecilia Beam and Carrie Casey for making it possible for me to visit this week. I've enjoyed meeting with young dancers, parents, with administrators, and others involved in the San Francisco Ballet operation. I'm very happy to share this research with you. Uh, this is research that I began at the invitation of the Encyclopedia of African American History and Culture which was first published in 1995. There have been a couple of editions since then. This presentation explores three strands of African-American presence in ballet. First, the ballet companies that included African-American artists in the first half of the 20th century. Second, the presence of single African-American artists as dancers and choreographers in majority white companies across the 20th century. And third, the unimpeachable influence of core black social dance styles on ballet practice that follow us all in our shared 21st century. I hope that the third part will prepare us for the Balanchine program later this evening and the Forsyth programming that is part of this year's San Francisco ballet season. My hope is to provide you some strategies for recognizing Africanist presence in contemporary ballet so that we can acknowledge the many ways that African-American culture has shifted and revised ballet's possibilities as an art form. The African-American presence in classical ballet, which was triumphantly confirmed by the founding of the Dance Theater of Harlem in 1969, grew slowly alongside general interest and the European form of theatrical stage dancing. And here we see the company in 1969 in front of their building, 
and here, Dance Theatre of Harlem performing Balanchine's Apollo from 2004. Classical ballet developed from dancing styles of 16th century European courts, refined in France, especially under the monarchy of Louis XIV, seen here, Ballet became the preferred form of dance expression in Europe and Russia by the 19th century. Ballet captured the interest of an American public only after tours of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe proved undeniably entertaining in the early part of the 20th century. And Petrushka was, of course, one of the pieces that was created for the Ballet Russe in 1911 and as we see from this indication here, it famously includes the character of the blackamoor, a fact that simultaneously implicates black bodies in the formation of modern ballet, even as it stereotyped and demonized them in some ways in terms of what the character does in the ballet. The assumption that European outlook, history, and technical theory of ballet were alien to the black dancer, culturally, temperamentally, and anatomically plagued African-American interest in the form for generations. Dance esthetes wrote about the unsuitability of black dancers' tight joints, they said, a natural turn in rather than the desired ballet turn out, they said, and hyperextension of the knee and weak feet. Most black dancers, of course, were barred from all-white ballet schools, and they turned to performing careers in modern and jazz dance. Ballet training, however, remained the basis of many stage dance techniques, and individual teachers had profound effects on pioneer African-American dance artists. In Chicago in the 1920s, Catherine Dunham, who we see here, she studied ballet with Ludmila Speraviza, before creating her own Dunham dance technique. The Jones-Haywood School of Dance, founded in Washington, D.C. in 1940, trained several significant ballet personalities, including Sylvester Campbell and Louis Johnson. Philadelphia's Judy Marr School was created in 1948, and it offered ballet classes led by Essie Marie Dorsey, and that school produced several outstanding ballet artists including Dolores Brown, Tamara Gillibo, John Jones, and Billy Wilson. Here we see uh, younger Catherine Dunham alongside George Balanchine when they worked together on the Broadway version of Cabin in the Sky. And we'll come back to Balanchine and his relationship to so many African-American artists and his interest in Africanist performance styles but I especially enjoy this photograph because it reminds us of Balanchine as a young man really trying things out and spending time with uh, other artists who worked in other idioms as he was expanding his own vocabulary and his sense of possibility for ballet. The racial division of Americans led to the formation of several separatist all-black dance companies that offered performing opportunities for growing numbers of classically trained dancers. Hemsley Winsfield's New Negro Art Theater Dance Group brought concert dance to the New York Roxy Theater in 1932, effectively proving that largely white audiences would accept black dancers. John Martin of the New York Times 
noted that the dancers, quote, refused to be dark-skinned reproductions of famous white prototypes, and he termed the concert an effort well worth making. Winfield's company performed with the Hall Johnson Choir in dances that he made. Eugene von Grona's American Negro Ballet debuted on November 21st, 1937 at Harlem's Lafayette Theater. The son of a white American mother and a German father, von Grona trained with modern dance choreographer Mary Wigman before moving to the United States in 1925. To form his company, he ran a newspaper advertisement in the Amsterdam News offering free dance lessons at the Harlem YMCA. Von Grona chose 30 trainees out of 150 respondents. And after three years of training in ballet and modern dance relaxation techniques, the company offered a program designed to address what he called the deeper and more intellectual resources of the Negro race. The original program choreographed to Von Grona to Duke Ellington Stravinsky, W.C. Handy, and J.S. Bach was received by critics as more the nature of a pupil's recital than an epoch-making new ballet organization. The program included a version of Stravinsky's Firebird, although critics wondered at the time that, quote, a Negro interpretation of a classical ballet would be too unrestrained to appeal to a ballet audience. This was published in the newspaper. Lukewarm critical reception to Von Grona's inventions and the absence of a committed audience shuttered the company's concert engagements after only five months. But in 1939, the company appeared on Broadway in Lou Leslie's Blackbirds and was renamed Von Grona's American Swing Ballet. By the end of that year, Von Grona was bankrupt and he disbanded the company. Important dancers in that company included Lavinia Williams, John Edwards, and Al Bledger. The first Negro classic ballet, which was also briefly known as the Hollywood Negro Ballet, was founded in 1948 by Joseph Ricard. Ricard, a German emigre and former dancer with the Ballet Russe, taught ballet to black students in Los Angeles. The company had a first concert in 1949. This was truly, in its way, a classical company with ballerinas performing on point. They performed Variations Classique, a suite of dances to Bach, as well as a reworking of Cinderella with African-American materials. The company was critically successful and lasted seven seasons touring on the West Coast with an annual performance at Los Angeles Philharmonia Auditorium. In 1956, Ricard brought his dancers to New York and this company combined with the New York Negro Ballet, which we'll discuss in just a moment. This photograph is especially interesting to me. Here we see Bernice Harrison partnered by James Truitt. James Truitt became uh, an important confidant to Alvin Ailey and was in the Ailey Company from its earliest days uh, and moving into the, the first decade of that company's success 
And he's the artist that Ailey worked with to create the solo, I Want to Be Ready, which is such an important part of the very important dance piece, Revelations. Here we see a, a review of the first Negro classic ballet, um, commending the dancers and offering us uh, the possibility of African-American dance companies at that point still thinking in terms of segregation, but that the possibility should be something that we could all hope for. I also enjoy this picture. We always enjoy seeing dance artists on the beach frolicking and, and having fun together. Uh, this picture of members of the Hollywood Negro Ballet from 1948 gives us a sense of the exuberance that the dancers certainly felt and also the excitement of the moment trying to imagine an African-American ballet that could be populated by black performers. Aubrey Hitchens' Negro Dance Theater, created in 1953, was an all-male repertory company. Hitchens had been born in England, that's Hitchens in the center there, and he had danced with the Russian Opera Company in Paris before he opened his own New York school in 1947. Hitchens ardently believed in the special dance talents of the Negro race, and he managed to book his group to perform at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival in August of 1954. Its repertory included Gotham Suite, with modern idioms based on classical forms suggested by the five boroughs of New York City. And the image we see here, Hitchens' own invention, Italian concerto to music of Bach. Among the dancers associated with the Negro Dance Theater were Anthony Bass, Frank Glass, Nat Horn, Bernard Johnson, Charles Martin, Charles Moore, Joe Nash, Charles Queenan, Edward Walrond, and Arthur Wright. The company remained together only through 1955. So this experiment, very odd experiment, but historically especially significant of an all-male repertory company that worked in the idiom of classical form in some of its inventions that it showed at least in performances at Jacob's Pillow. And now Edward Fleming's New York Negro Ballet Company, which is the company that really precipitated or predicted the dance theater of Harlem and our shared economy of African-American artists in major dance companies. Edward Fleming's New York Negro Ballet Company was founded as Les Ballets Neg in 1955. And it began as a small group that took daily technique classes with Maria Nevelska who had been a former member of the Bolshoi, the Bolshoi Ballet. Fleming was a charismatic and driven African-American dancer born in Detroit, and he organized private sponsorship of the company. In 1957, the group enjoyed a landmark tour of England, Scotland, and Wales. Among the dancers on that tour were Anthony Bass, Dolores Brown, Candace Caldwell, Sylvester Campbell, Georgia Collins, Theodore Crum, Roland Frazier, Thelma Hill, Michael and Jackson, Francis Jimenez, Bernard Johnson, Charles Neal, Cleo Quitman, Jean Sagan, 
Helen Tate, Betty Ann Thompson, and Barbara Wright. The company's repertory included Ernest Parham's piece, Mardi Gras, but also two ballets by Lewis Johnson, and here we see Waltz, a classical ballet for 12 dancers. And Johnson also offered something called Folk Impressions, uh, an American ballet set to music by Morton Gould. And here we see another piece that was offered as part of the repertory of the company, Raising Cain. Reviews of the company were flattering and encouraging. And a reviewer in the London-based Dance and Dancers wrote, New York Negro Ballet amounts to a sincere attempt at establishing the Negro as an important contributor to the art of ballet as a whole. Soon after the two-month tour, Fleming's principal patron died, and the company began to unravel. A 1958 performance in New York with the new name Ballet Americana was noted by dance writer Doris Herring as having zest and high energy yet to be cast in the careful mold of ballet. Still, the company could not find sufficient patronage and was completely disbanded by 1960. And here's an image from Mardi Gras, the piece by um, Ernest Parham. This is an image of Dolores Brown, who was a ballerina with the New York uh, Negro Ballet Company, and Brown and Bernard Johnson performed a classical pas de deux on the tour, which was of great interest to the audiences and also um, effectively opened the space that, yes, African-American dancers who had had to figure out their training as best they could could definitely approach these roles and produce not only credible but exciting and dynamic performances of these ballets at the time. So now we switch to thinking about dances and dancers, unless the companies themselves. Documentation of African-American interest in ballet exists well before the establishment of any of the all-black companies. An artist named Helena Justa Arms performed toe dances in vaudeville in the 1910s. Mary Richards danced on toe in the 1923 Broadway production of Struttin' Along. And Josephine Baker performed on toe for at least one number in her Paris Opera Days. And here we see an image of Josephine Baker on toe. Some researchers have discovered that Balanchine actually coached Josephine Baker in some of her toe performances, and that's a very interesting aspect of research that's ongoing. In 1940, Agnes DeMille, the Broadway choreographer, created Black Ritual for the New York Ballet Theater, which was the precursor of the present-day American Ballet Theater. This was a piece performed by a cast of 16 women to a score by Darius Milot. The piece was, according to the choreographer, intended to project the psychological atmosphere of a primitive community during the performance of austere and vital ceremonies. Although this was not a classically shaped ballet, its cast had received dance training in a specially established Negro wing at the Ballet Theater School. Critical reaction to the piece was muted, but inspired dance writer Walter Terry to call for 
a Negro vocabulary of movement composed of modern dance movements, ballet steps, tap, and others, which should enable the Negro to express himself artistically and not merely display his muscular prowess. And here we see Lewis Johnson and Barbara White, uh, Barbara Wright rather, in Variations, um, a piece that Johnson made. The post-World War II era brought the beginnings of integrated classical dance in the United States. Tally Beatty, Arthur Bell, and Betty Nichols were briefly associated with New York's Ballet Society, where Beatty appeared in Lou Christensen's dance, Blackface and Arthur Bell appeared in Frederick Ashton's Illuminations in 1950. In 1952, Lewis Johnson, who we see here, was a student at the School of American Ballet, and he created a role in Jerome Robbins' work, Ballade, for the New York City Ballet. Johnson began a significant choreographic career with Lament, a piece he made in 1953, which was a story ballet set to the music of Hector Villalobos and first presented with an integrated cast at the third New York Ballet Club annual choreographer's night. Here we see Arthur Bell uh, in the performance of Illuminations by Frederick Ashton. And Arthur Bell's career is especially interesting and might serve as a a cautionary tale, or maybe that's not the word, but a, a reminder that our responsibility to the artists of the stage probably doesn't end when we applaud them and throw flowers and leave the theater. Bell had uh, an exceptional career as a young artist, but it was limited by the segregation of the times, of course. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, I lost a slide here. Um, uh, Bell had... Uh, become homeless after, after he stopped dancing he worked in some sort of menial positions and then became homeless unfortunately and he was discovered in Brooklyn in the 1990s by a social worker who had been a photographer and it's, it's an astonishing story and she, she was a social worker who had worked as a ballet photographer um, back in the 50s and when he was, he was telling these stories about his uh, affiliations she believed him and she looked things up and was able to verify that he actually had worked with Frederick Ashton and performed in Paris and been an artist of the ballet. And she was able to help move him into an Actors Fund retirement and nursing home in Inglewood, New Jersey. And he was able to pass away his life with a regained dignity in 2004 at the age of 77. For me as a researcher, Bell's story again reminds me that um, as people find their way into and out of ballet, which is a, a demanding profession and an ephemeral occupation, that how they respond to the rest of their lives, if you will, is also a part of the story and maybe a part of our consideration of our interest and respect for ballet artists. Janet Collins was the most famous African-American classical dancer of this era in the 1950s. She began her career in vaudeville and was actually a member of the original Catherine Dunham troupe. Born in New Orleans and raised in Los Angeles, Collins danced with the Lester Horton Company before moving to New York in 1948, 
where she won a prestigious Rosenwald Fellowship to tour the East and Midwest in her own dances. Her 1949 New York performance debut was greeted with exceptional enthusiasm by critic John Martin of the New York Times, who called her a rich talent and a striking theatrical personality at the beginning of a promising career. He continued, her style is basically eclectic. Its direction is modern and its technical foundation chiefly ballet. The fusing element is a markedly personal approach. Collins won the Donaldson Award for her performance in the Broadway production of Cole Porter's Out of This World. She achieved her greatest fame as prima ballerina for the Metropolitan Opera from 1951 to 1954, where she danced in Aida, La Giaconda, and Samson and Delilah. Many African-American artists of the ballet found an acceptance in Europe unknown in the United States. Sylvester Campbell remained in Europe after he toured with the New York Negro um, dance company, ballet, that we discussed before. He eventually became a principal with the Netherlands, or Dutch, National Ballet, and he danced leading roles in Swan Lake, Romeo and Juliet, and Le Corsair. Jean Sagan and Roland Frazier, also of the New York Negro Ballet, joined the Marseille Ballet and the Cologne Ballet, respectively. And I have another image of Sylvester Campbell here. And here we see Campbell um, performing uh, uh, Giselle. Campbell, actually, after he finished dancing in Europe and wanted to move on to the next part of his life, returned to the United States and became a, a, a very valuable and cherished mentor and teacher to many dancers in the Baltimore area where he taught for many, many years, uh, especially interested, of course, in working with artists of color. Brooklyn-born Jamie Boyer danced with the Roland, Pete, Roland Petit Ballet de Paris and appeared with the company in the MGM film The Glass Slipper. In 1954, Raven Wilkerson was admitted to the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo as that company's sole black female ballerina. Wilkinson stayed with the company for six years, although she was occasionally barred for performing in some southern theaters because of her race. Arthur Mitchell, who joined the New York City Ballet as its first permanent black dancer in 1955, experienced similar racial discrimination when U.S. television broadcasters refused to air programs in which he danced with white ballerinas. And we might all be familiar with Arthur Mitchell's exceptional career as an artist with New York City Ballet and as a, a muse and inspiration for um, George Balanchine. The affiliation of African-American dancers with mostly white companies accelerated throughout the 1960s. The Harkness Ballet of New York ran an aggressive recruitment and educational program in consultation with New York Negro Ballet alumna Thelma Hill. And by 1968, that program had successfully placed five black members in the Harkness Ballet Company. 
choreographer Alvin Ailey, who created Feast of Ashes for the Joffrey Ballet in 1962, also made Ariadne, Elamor Brujo, and Macumba for the Harkness Ballet Company. And a little closer to home, we have an image here of Christopher Boatwright. Significant post-civil post rights era dancers affiliated with major American ballet companies include Keith Lee, who danced as a soloist with American Ballet Theater, John Jones, who danced with Jerome Robbins Ballet USA and the Dance Theater of Harlem and the Joffrey Ballet and the Harkness Ballet, Christian Holder of the Joffrey Ballet, Deborah Austin of the New York City Ballet and the Pennsylvania Ballet, Lauren Anderson of the Houston Ballet, Mel Tomlinson of the Dance Theater of Harlem and the New York City Ballet, and again here, Christopher Boatwright, who distinguished himself in the San Francisco Ballet, dancing a wide repertory of roles in the 1980s and 1990s. I want to speak briefly about the Dance Theater of Harlem legacy. The founding of Dance Theater of Harlem in 1969 conclusively ended speculation about the suitability of African-American interest in ballet. Arthur Mitchell's company and its affiliated school provided training and performing opportunities for black dancers and choreographers from all over the world. Heralded as a major company of international stature within its first 15 years, DTH fostered an unsurpassed standard of black classicism revealed in the versatile technique of principal dancers Stephanie Dabney, Lorraine Graves, Christina Johnson, Virginia Johnson, Ty Jimenez, Andrea Long, Ronald Perry, Judith Rotardier, Eddie Shellman, Lowell Smith, and Donald Williams. And I'm a little out of order. I want to actually share with you a bit of film of Deborah Austin in La Sylphide. Now, as we move in towards the third part of the presentation, um, we actually have video that we can look at, which I think um, we'll all be happy to do. Let's see. Yeah, okay. So we're going to take a look now at Deborah Austin performing in La Sylphide. And what I'd like us to pay attention to is that as we're into the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, now it's possible for African-American artists to take leading roles in the United States and to offer their artistry alongside their white and Latino and Asian um, company members. And this is the revelation and the shift that happens post-civil rights.
back to the dance theory of Harlem, and again, this idea of a conclusive presence uh, that ended speculation about the suitability of African-American interest in ballet, which, as we might recall, had been a, a major theme that had haunted African-American dancers across the first half of the 20th century. Mitchell's company and its affiliated school provided training and performing opportunities from artists from all over the world, and the company was heralded as a company of international stature within its first 15 years and, and created an unsurpassed standard of black classicism. So I want to switch now and talk about how, as DTH performances set a standard of black classicism, discernible African-American influences on ballet began to be understood and documented. Choreographer George Balanchine, who served on the original DTH board of directors, successfully articulated a neoclassical style of ballet that emphasized thrust hips, rhythmic syncopations commonly found in African-American social dance. And here we might remember that Balanchine, when he came to the United States, spoke to his main patron, Lincoln Kirstein. And when Kirstein asked him what kind of company he wanted to make, he was very quick and very clear. He said, I'd like to start with a company of 16 dancers, uh, eight white girls, eight white boys, and an even number of Negroes. He wrote this in a letter to Kirstein. And he said, I'd like to start with them at the age of 16 or so, and then after a few years, I'll add more younger dancers at the age of eight and train them across 10 years. He also proposed several ballets that he wanted to make, including a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Kirstein, being an American, understood that racial politics in the U.S. really precluded the fulfillment of Balanchine's wish or dream, and that that simply wasn't possible. And Uncle Tom's Cabin was never produced by New York City Ballet or Balanchine. Even though Balanchine had made an offer to incorporate the dancing that he appreciated so much as a Russian who came to the United States, he was definitely fascinated and curious about African-American social dances, but he also wanted to incorporate black people in his company. When that was denied him, he found a way to incorporate ideologies of African-American social dance in his choreography. And we might also want to remember back to the image of him with Catherine Dunham and that he was spending a lot of time when he was choreographing Broadway musicals with African-American artists. And he was doing the thing that many white artists did at the time of going uptown to the Savoy, watching the jazz dancers, the social dancers, and then incorporating those ideas in his choreography. Balanchine, uh, again, set a standard of a neoclassical movement that also helped us understand the possibilities of African-American social dance as foundational material for neoclassical ballet. Prominent in his masterpieces, The Four Temperaments from 1946 and Ruby's Section of Jewels from 1967 are references to the Charleston, the Cakewalk, the Lindy Hop, and tap dancing. And here's an image of uh, Dance Theater of Harlem in a section of Four Temperaments. Um, we're going to look together at the very end of the Four Temperaments, and we'll look at a, a contemporary version by San Francisco Ballet performing the work. 
And what I'd like to ask you to notice are the ways that Balanchine incorporates aspects of social dance from just before the time he made this work. We'll see lifts that are like Lindy Hop lifts that arrive with the ballerina straddling across the turned out legs of the dancers. We'll also see, um, here we see an image of Mitchell and Balanchine in rehearsal for the four temperaments. And what we might notice here is how Mitchell exaggerates the posture that Balanchine suggests, um, thrusting his, his chest uh, further over his legs and his hips out further, suggesting the uh, multiple centers of body movement that are common in African-American, common and important in African-American social dance. And here we see the strut that will be part of the video that we're just about to watch, which is quite unusual for ballet and very much a reference to vaudeville sorts of struts or Broadway choreography employed in the context of the four temperaments to give it part of the flavor and style it so benefits from. like jazz dancing, Balanchine is extending classical style by incorporating African-American social dance movements. There's the Lindy Hop lift with the dancers on the outstretched legs of their partners. finale with airplanes taking off over LaGuardia Airport. It's <laughs> part of the imagery here. Black musicians inspired several important ballet collaborations, including Alvin Ailey and Duke Ellington's The River, which was choreographed for American Ballet Theater and included both parody and distillation of social African-American dance styles in several sections. I want to uh, screen a short clip from the river with Cynthia Gregory uh, offering a solo from a section called Lake. This video was made in 1971, just after the work premiered, so it's a little bit grainy, but we get the idea. of gesture with Gregory shimmering through these movements with her hair down, passing through gestures that combine a relaxed attack with a precision of line. We can especially note the harrowing Ponche arabesques performed solo without a partner as a pitch reaching toward the ground, the floor, and the sky simultaneously. 
That's the uh, hot chair best pitch I was describing. I'm sorry to stop Cynthia Gregory in the middle of her gesture. We just have a few more minutes. Many choreographers, composers, and dance artists of African descent have poured their energy into ballet with companies of various sizes around the world. Notably, the aesthetic devices that define African-American performance, and these include complex rhythm, percussive attack, moving from more than one physical center, call and response, and an abiding cool demeanor, well, these qualities have become hallmarks for scores of contemporary ballet choreographers. And here I'm thinking of William Forsyth, whose work is included in the San Francisco Ballet's current season. We note in Forsyth's work a reliance on asymmetry, prolonged balance, and a cool stance tempered by explosive power. We see these aspects of movement in, in many of his works, and Forsyth, like Balanchine, has always counted black American artists among his closest collaborators and he draws on their improvisational abilities and stylistic choice making to define his own creative exercises. So we just have a few minutes left, so we'll see, uh, I think what we'll look at is a video of the solo from Pa Parts, which is part of the current season um, here at San Francisco Ballet. We might want to remember that whereas Balanchine grew up studying modern classical music, Forsyth grew up with Motown, Prince, funk, and punk rock, and these roots show in the compositional structures of his creations. Here we note the soloist taking risks as he challenges himself in a steady stream of various impulses, long balances, quick accented jumps and hesitations, longing extensions, and absolutely fierce assemblées. Sorry, Francisco Mungamba, but I, we need to wrap up here. So, the profound artistic achievement of DTH, Dance Theater of Harlem, oops, in, innumerable individual African American artists and companies around the world, and Balanchine's neoclassical fusion of ballet and African American social dance has created a contemporary ballet repertory that is an indisputably African based vividly realized in works by many American choreographers, Gerald Arpino, William Forsyth, Jerome Robbins, Twyla Tharp, and on and on and on. Ironically, the core African-American dance styles, which value subversive invention, participatory interaction, and an overwhelming sense of bodily presence, diverge neatly from ballet's traditional conception of strictly codified body line, a silenced and motionless audience, and movement as metaphoric abstraction. The process of building an African-American audience space responsive to ballet, an action begun by Dance Theater of Harlem, is necessary to expand the legacy of black classicism 
for generations to come. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Points of View podcast from San Francisco Ballet. For more podcasts, other engagement programming, or more information, please check out sfballet.org.